guest this week is the co-host, along with a gentleman named Mark Edge, of a long-running syndicated radio talk show titled Free Talk Live that emanates from Keene, New Hampshire evenings between 7 and 10 p.m. Eastern. In addition to the two co-hosts, the show features a rotating panel of regular personalities, such as one individual whose legal name is Nobody, described as ministers of the Shire Free Church, and it features various voices from New Hampshire's Liberty Activist community. The show has guests and takes callers from across the nation. Ah, but there's so much more to this story than that. Although still on the air regularly, our guest is currently under federal arrest on a wide array of charges ranging from money laundering to wire fraud. He maintains his innocence and claims the FBI and other government agencies are hell-bent on shutting him up after years of dealing with the nuisance of the show's activism and controversial information. He'll begin his trial later this year. Stand by for a fascinating conversation about the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom in general, as well as civil disobedience and the role and impact of cryptocurrency in our modern society. Our guest this week is Ian Freeman. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Interview, the weekly podcast from Podcast One for media freaks, pop culture aficionados, political junkies, and the philosophically curious. Thank you for downloading this program from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the Podcast One app, and for following our Tuesday tweets announcing the names of our weekly guests. To sign up, it's at MH Interview. I can be reached directly via email at michaelatalkers.com. If you find this show to be of interest and value, please subscribe to it as well as giving it a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. An uninterrupted conversation with Ian Freeman. So, Ian Freeman, I can't believe finally after what seems like months and years, actually it has been months and years, that uh, you've been embroiled in all kinds of interesting things. We finally have a chance to sit down and do a long-form conversation and uh, clarify things. I have to admit there are so many aspects to what you do and what you're doing that I don't really understand, like the the depths of cryptocurrency or really... Um, uh, deep dives into libertarian philosophy. There, there's so many things. So I'm going to try to conduct this interview in as orderly and organized a way as possible so that everybody listening to it can come away understanding who you are, what your present circumstance is, but also some of the background that led up to it, not to mention um, some insight into the amazing radio show that you and uh, Mark Edge have um, been producing and uh, creating and performing for, for so many years. Does it sound fair? What a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yes. Okay. So let's start by saying you're in Keene, New Hampshire right now. And before we even get into the whole story about your legal complications, for somebody who has no idea about Free Talk Live, can you give us the, um, the Free Talk Live 101, a little background and, and what, what the show is all about, how it started, what it stands for, and where it's at now, aside from all the legal problems? We started on a Clear Channel radio station in Sarasota, Florida back in 2002 when Clear Channel was experimenting with their real radio format that had been a huge success in Orlando since the mid-1990s, uh, kind of the, your typical FM hot talker, uh, blue talker, if you will. And they expanded that format out to a few other markets, including West Palm Beach and Sarasota, uh, which is where I was working at the cluster there. So they flipped one of their... Uh, what was then a rock station to this FM talk format. And it was all coming in off a satellite from either West Palm or from Orlando. And having already been a fan of uh, the talk radio format at that point, and I was in my early 20s, 20, I think 22 at the time, uh, I, I said, well, you know, we need to have something local. We, we got nothing here that's originating from Sarasota. So we pitched them on this idea of, hey, let's do this show on the weekend. Uh, we'll call it Free Talk Live, and it'll be open phones, and let's see how it goes. And, you know, I'd been there for several years at that point, so I wasn't some unknown person coming in. And we said, most importantly, that we were willing to do it for free. Ah, so <laughs> that, that, it has a lot of meaning, Free Talk Live. <laughs> yes, meaning that we weren't getting paid mm -hmm. uh, to do the show. And uh, so, that, you know, they didn't have anything to lose, so they put us on the air, and uh, the first night we were there, 
it was wall-to-wall phone calls. It never stopped, and it was pretty uh, pretty amazing how that, that got started. When you say we, are you talking about you and Mark? Yeah, he was actually my phone screener uh, for the very first night, but there was a microphone sitting in front of him, so he uh, instantly became a co-host on the show. There were three people on the show that, that very first night. And, but you were, you were the centerpiece. Correct, yep. And 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 what was your what was your style? What was your what was your your shtick at that point um, as a talk show host? Uh, had you um, begun down the path toward libertarianism and a real full definition of the word free that um, began to unfold uh, in your wake? Yeah, I mean, my style was probably pretty unpolished at that point, but uh, but definitely was libertarian. And it was a lot of fun to take as many callers as we did. Honestly, we had more callers as a local talk show on a 4,000-watt rimshot uh, FM talk radio station back then than we do today as a syndicated show, which is kind of sad. But that's the way it's always been. As soon as we got into syndication, the call levels dropped off like a cliff, curiously. That's very interesting. And, and, and we spent a lot of time and energy and, uh, and focus in trying to understand the nature of calls. And uh, there has been a general uh, lessening of phone calls on talk radio in the past 20 years. A lot of that has to do with um, the fact that uh, maybe people are not as excited about being on the radio as a caller as they were back when there weren't that many other forms of media for people to express themselves on. Now everybody has their own platform. Everybody's a star on their own Facebook page or their own yeah, Twitter account. So it's uh, that could be part of it. Um, but, Might be, uh, but this was back in 2004 when we finally got syndicated. So I'll try to compress the story. So we started as a, I think it was a Sunday night show. And within a couple of weeks, we came to management and or I think maybe they came to us, actually, and said, you know, can we do uh, weeknights? And so we did weeknights. We replaced what was the show then coming in from Orlando. And uh, we were then on five nights a week doing Free Talk Live as a local show. Eventually, they came and uh, offered us, like, kind of waiter's pay, I think. We got, like, two or three bucks an hour for, mm-hmm. for doing the show, just covering the gas to get out to the studio. And uh, ultimately, Clear Channel, as they are likely to do or were likely to do back then, didn't keep the format around for very long. They ended up blowing it up and uh, they promised us they were going to put us on their AM talker, which they were going to put all this money into. And that never materialized. And so uh, at some point, I was given a severance package after six years with uh, with Clear Channel and uh, walked out the door. But they they never had us sign any kind of an agreement or anything regarding Free Talk Live. That was really the best thing for us, Michael, was the fact that they left us alone. We were on this this station that no one in the building really cared about. The program director was also the program director of the huge oldies station at the time, and he didn't have any time for you know programming this basically satellite-run uh, FM talk station. So he certainly wasn't listening to, to no. us. They, they probably didn't take you that seriously. You, you know, the old uh, Chris Christopherson line from the Janis Joplin song, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. <laughs> um, you know, when a big company like that is working along and there's this odd show on the weekend, they're not going to sit there and go, we got to get the rights to that name. This is going to be a big syndicated show in 20 years on 250 stations and making a lot of money. Um, it's it, it, that's how that's how things get started. It, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it falls outside of the uh, the focus of some of these big companies. Speaking of big companies, for people listening to this who may not be familiar with the history of modern radio, um, the Clear Channel that Ian is referring to is Clear Channel, which was the name of iHeart before it was iHeart, right. and also has another meaning that I think has been lost in the uh, sands of time, that a Clear Channel station was a 50,000-watt station in which there was no other station either in America or on one side of the country that was on that same right. frequency. So it was a Clear Channel, which was very smart of them calling themselves Clear Channel Communications at that time. But I find a lot of people don't remember the name Clear Channel anymore. iHeart's wow, been in business. Really? Well, you know, the years go by. <laughs> yeah, true. And, um, you know, uh, we live in a time of short uh, short-term attention span. So th- now, now take it forward, and, I, and I'm glad to hear you say you're compacting the story. Um, <laughs> from from that point to um, moving to New Hampshire, tell us that. Yeah, so uh, we ended up um, buying time on a local station and then uh, going to another local station and then got syndicated by Genesis Communications Network in, in 2004. Uh, and a couple years later, we migrated the studio up to Keene, New Hampshire, from my hometown of Sarasota, Florida. And that was as a part of what's called the Free State Project. 
and I I had been a libertarian activist in Florida. Um, was involved with you know various different libertarian campaigns and things like that. Uh, the campaign for president in the year 2000 for Harry Brown. And uh, when I heard about the idea of libertarians coming together physically in a ge- one geographic area, I thought, wow, this is this is a no brainer. Um, I've got to be involved in this because historically libertarians have never had any kind of political sway. They've never done anything significant in any election, pretty much anywhere. Uh, just because there aren't enough of us, and so the idea was very simple: uh, was hey, let's let's get together, and so we did. So, so this thing called the Free State Project was basically a um, a focal point for libertarianism that was taking place in the Keene, New Hampshire area. Have I got that right? No, it's uh, focusing on one state. So, New Hampshire um, was the chosen state. There were actually ten candidate states, all of which had a population of less than 1.5 million. So that was the the main qualifier to be one of the candidate states. And the first 5,000 members of the Free State Project voted on which state uh, they wanted to choose. New Hampshire won that vote overwhelmingly. And so it became the destination in, I think, 2003. And what are called early movers began moving pretty much right away. So we were some of the early movers. The project's goal was to reach 20,000 libertarians who would pledge to make the move to New Hampshire once that 20,000 point was reached. So the idea was kind of, hey, we'll go together if there's enough people who are willing to do this. It took about 15 years for them to actually reach that level. Uh, It was, I think, 2016 when the Free State Project finally reached that goal of 20,000 people signed. So we moved a decade prior to it reaching that goal. What about the, uh, the you know, the, the, the city elders, the, fa- the fathers, the, the, the establishment of Keene? How'd they feel about you guys being there and uh, all of this libertarian stuff? Well, they are not fans of uh, libertarians because obviously the libertarian philosophy, which, you know, is basically the idea of leave me aloneism, uh, or the what they call the non-aggression principle, the idea that uh, people should be free to live their lives how they want, so long as they're not harming others. And you know, government doesn't work that way. Government, uh, the state, is ultimately a group of strangers who force their, their beliefs on others through the threat of violence. And so a bunch of peace activists show up in town and start doing civil disobedience, which I was involved in up here as well. Uh, they don't like that because it brings attention to the violence that is sort of inherent in the system. And so obviously they were not fans of, of us. And that's one of the reasons why I chose Keene. Keene is sort of known as one of the more leftist uh, liberal cities in New Hampshire. It's, of course, way more free than anywhere in California or New York. But compared to the rest of New Hampshire, it's definitely one of the more lefty places. So we figured if we're going to if we're going to stir it up with uh, doing controversial activism like civil disobedience, there's no better place than the more kind of big government city in New Hampshire. But a lot of people moved to Manchester and Concord and uh, the, the bigger cities with actual population and, and jobs. Keene sort of attracted kind of a outside the system, direct action, uh, in the streets type of activist. Hmm. The um, uh, It's interesting how libertarianism kind of falls over to the right but is not the right. It's not the Republican Party. I would imagine you have your differences with them as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, I think, a misperception that libertarianism falls over to the right. Um, I think there's people that come to the idea of, of liberty from all over the political spectrum. But for the last, most of the last 20 years, they have put forth sort of right-leaning candidates for their presidential tickets. Uh, the former governor of, uh, of New Mexico ran a couple of times. Bob Barr was in 2008. And those, to me, are like facepalm-level candidates. I have not been happy with the National Libertarian Party for quite a, quite a long time. And I actually publicly resigned from them back in 2008 because I was concerned that they weren't really keeping to the principles of liberty and more pandering to people on the right. So... I do think that that libertarianism is not necessarily one side or the other. And so, folks, when you hear people say capital L libertarianism versus small L uh, libertarianism, it's very much like uh, saying small D Democrat or Democratic and large D, which means the party. There certainly is, as we know in all big organized things, a difference between the big organization that represents a philosophy and uh, the philosophy 
itself. True. Um, give us a little bit of the history of your activism in Keene prior to the big trouble that, that you're dealing with right now. I, I, I know we used to follow your stories and you would, you know, you would, you would do something that right now is very popular on YouTube. People, you know, video uh, recording, they're challenging the status quo, challenging the police, challenging the, the rules. You guys were doing that before it was popular. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit of that history. Yeah, uh, I was around when an organization got started here in Keene that ended up going national called Cop Block. And uh, it's kind of doesn't exist anymore, but for many years it was the primary go-to uh, police accountability organization out there that encouraged people to not just record uh, interactions with the police on the streets or wherever, but also to kind of insert themselves into the situation, perhaps by suggesting to someone uh, a particular strategy like, hey, don't talk to the cops, you know, actually kind of inserting your opinion into a situation. Let's just say if the police had pulled somebody over that you didn't even know, just pulling out a video camera and, and uh, being becoming part of that. So kind of a different approach than the cop watch organization that had existed pri uh, prior to that. And so inevitably, if you encounter enough police and you record video of enough of them, they're going to take a, take an interest in you. <laughs> and mm. so uh, you, you're going to have some conflict uh, with them. And ultimately, uh, that was only one aspect of what some of us did here. A lot of us actually did straight up civil disobedience and publicly announced in advance that we would be violating various different victimless crime laws, such as uh, public drinking or uh, smoking or possessing cannabis, things like that. And those always inevitably led to some pretty ridiculous uh, footage as far as, you know, the police responses and and so on. Of course, we'd also continue recording video of the court trials. So we would have video from, you know, start to finish of whenever the activism actually occurred all the way to whatever conviction might have happened, even right on down to dropping the person off at jail and, and picking them up uh, later on. We, we had so much great footage. We actually made a documentary film about it called Derek J's Victimless Crime Spree. Hmm. Didn't, you, didn't you once uh, get in trouble for putting coins in people's meters before their car was parked illegally or something like that? Yeah, that one actually blew up. It was probably the biggest story. I mean, we've gotten a lot of press over the years for some of the activism here in Keene. But that one has to be the biggest of all of them. It was called Robin Hooding. Uh, and the idea was if uh, somebody's meter was expired, we'd drop a nickel into it to prevent them from getting a ticket. And we would do it right in front of the parking enforcer. So we had enough people, volunteer activists at one point, where we, we had people out like eight hours a day or six or eight hours a day, literally just walking around in front of the parking enforcer feeding meters. So it wasn't civil disobedience in that case. That was actually an example of civil obedience, where we were just doing what people are supposed to do, which is paying the parking meters. And of course, that basically meant that the parking enforcers couldn't write any tickets. And they, they got very upset about that, because that's really what it's all about. It's not about you know, keeping people from, uh, it's not about freeing up parking spaces as much as it is about ticketing the people who are in those spaces to collect revenue. That's ultimately what those, those systems are really for. And so we showed that to be crystal clear when we dropped their revenue from, you know, $50,000 a year to 20000 or something like this. It's a small town, right? So it's not a huge amount, but, uh, but we did have a huge impact on them. And so they cooked up a civil case against us. So this wasn't a criminal charge. They cooked up a civil case and they, they brought it against us. We hired a, well, didn't hire, but we had a, an attorney pro bono who, uh, John Meyer out of Manchester, he's like one of the top free speech attorneys here. And he just cleaned the city's clocks. We won that case at the New Hampshire Supreme Court ultimately. And and uh, well, we won it at the lower court, and then they appealed, and then we won it again uh, at the Supreme Court. They were accusing us of threatening and har harassing their officers, which of course was completely untrue, because we had a ton of video that proved that that wasn't the case. So, and uh, wow, wow. Ultimately, it was a free speech case because yeah. you have the right to tell uh, a government employee 
including the parking enforcer, how you feel about them. And and it's actually turned out to be part of their job description that they have to be willing to endure <laughs> what the people think about them on the streets. So they ultimately had no case. Fascinating. Now, now as the years are going by and you're doing this, uh, it basically came across as, as you guys were pranksters with a legal mission. That You weren't no, – nobody I know in the radio industry took – you as serious criminals or troublemakers. If anything, it provided fodder for an interesting radio show. That it was almost like a reality show. You talked about issues. You 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 take calls, but there was always this backdrop of of your adventures in Keen. Am I correct? I mean, it it, it was part of like the shtick. Yeah, it's interesting that you describe it that way because that's that's how I've described Free Talk Live as kind of a, a reality show. In that we're not just talking about our opinions on the news. In many cases, we are the newsmakers. We're getting out there and we actually put our beliefs into action. And sometimes that, of course, has some pretty undesirable consequences, but it certainly does make for interesting discussion that is not happening anywhere else. Well, how did you build this business? Now, now you were doing this, you know, far cry from working for Clear Channel or iHeart or any of the big companies. You were doing this through a, a smaller, independent platform. You mentioned Genesis Communications Network. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the opposite end of the spectrum within the, the legitimate broadcasting business uh, than, a, than a Clear Channel or an iHeart or Cumulus or uh, Odyssey and all those big guns. Um, and yet you continued to grow and you, you, you built a real serious business. Um, one of the best uh, Aww, maintaining the ma- – well, we've always been impressed with the job that, that you and Mark have done from an industry standpoint. You know, we're, we're a trade publication, so we, we, we're certainly interested in programming and all the issues. Obviously, free speech is the, the bulwark of our mission. But we approach things from the broadcasting industry – not from the perspective of a political movement or a political party. And I've been doing this for years, and um, I'm supportive of many different divergent points of view that are Mm -hmm. being professed out there by different people, all of whom, uh, you know, I stand behind. You know what I do. Yeah. And uh, I've always been supportive of you guys uh, from that perspective. But just to share a few minutes of how did you turn this into a business within the establishment industry when you're so unestablishment? It's an excellent question, and it really boils down to persistence and a lot of phone calls. Um, I started early on when we when we got syndicated. I said, you know, I'm not going to rely on the network to do the work of getting affiliates for Free Talk Live. Um, that is something that I'm going to do. And the, the rest of their shows, for the most part, don't do any affiliate relations. They just rely on the network affiliate relations boiler room to make the calls and, you know, smile and dial. And so I went through Radio Locator, which is a handy little website that lists uh, radio stations and details about them. And I went state by state through all the talk radio stations, and I made a custom database with every single talk station that I could find. Uh, put their you know phone number in there and the you know wattage and whatever details I could about them into the database, and then started calling around and learning who the program directors were and. Just went through the process of pitching the show to them. And, you know, the process of sales takes time. So many of them took years uh, to, to get on board of creating rapport with those program directors and and uh, introducing them to Free Talk Live, getting them ultimately to sample the show and finding out what they thought about it. And if they liked it, then following up and following up until finally something happened. And that's one of the nice things about having a weekend show because we were ultimately uh, six days a week when we started in syndication. Uh, having that weekend show was a good foot in the door because most stations aren't going to just flip their weekday format for an untested, unproven show, but they might be willing to give up a Saturday night slot. So that's kind of how we did it. Mm-hmm. And um, as we're coming into the, the teens now, you know, 2015, 2016, um, am I correct in, in describing the show as basically being a two-man show with a cast of, char- of rotating characters and that the two key figures were you and Mark Edge and um, that you had your own uh, morning or in this case nighttime zoo of um, various and sundry figures? 
Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't describe it as a zoo per se because that's you know a little more wild and crazy. Uh, but uh, but definitely we had a, a variety of hosts and still do to this day. And part of the reason for that is because. Well, number one, Free Talk Live isn't as much uh, of a business as it is a, a mission for me and the people that are a part of it. Um, there's a small stipend that people receive for, for being on the air, but we don't have employees or anything like that. People are on the show because they love doing it. They love uh, being on the radio and having their opinions heard. That's the primary, I think, their primary motivation for being on. And my motivation for not just wanting it to be me and Mark is because, honestly, I, I, I like the variety. I like having other people to talk to. I don't I never wanted to do a, a talking head show. The the reason why it was named Free Talk Live and not the Ian and Mark show or the Ian Freeman show is because I just don't want to listen to myself for three hours straight. Mm. I mean, I could do that show if I really wanted to, but I'd be bored to tears. I'd much rather actually have interactions with with callers, number one, and with uh, with other opinions behind the microphones in the studio. So we we change up the hosts basically every single day. There's there's somebody else on the air. Yeah, so it's interesting you when you mention uh, you know stipend or not paying people. You took a lesson from your original job in Sarasota. <laughs> <laughs> if they yeah. could do it, you could do it too. <laughs> but uh, that's the that's unfortunately um, something that's also exploited by a lot of people who have uh, have the licenses and own the platforms today. So uh, let's uh, let's pivot into the tough stuff. How did uh, how did you wind up now being in so much trouble with um, the FBI and with the federal government? And um, you know, tell your story. I I do not come as a prosecutor nor a defender. Mm. Um, I'm I'm just basically taking you at face value to tell us the story it with, goes... bit, with with Bitcoin and and crypto and and the last couple of years that this has. Um, has evolved. Well, I actually have to go back further than the last couple of years because this uh, started evolving probably as far back as at least that we know of, 2005, when FBI agent Phil Christiana started sniffing around the free staters, uh, as we are called sometimes here, those who moved to New Hampshire as part of the Free State Project, started to kind of uh, sniff around the free staters that live in Keene. He uh, he made himself appear and ask questions at somebody's uh, place way back when, and has ever since been apparently just obsessed with uh, learning about us and trying to find something that he can charge us with uh, criminally. And you know we could speculate as to why that is. Maybe the FBI thinks that the Free State Project is some sort of a threat to the status quo, or maybe that's they just always investigate every political group, or whatever. But uh, ultimately, it led his continuing investigation led to 2012 when he arrested or had arrested. Uh, he had the Keene Police arrest and the Drug Task Force arrest someone who became one of our co-hosts at the time. His name was Rich Paul. He has since changed his name to Nobody. And when he ran for governor in 2020, but he was arrested for selling cannabis uh, in Keene. And it was a very curious case because they actually had a heroin dealer who they'd busted in town. And then they had the heroin dealer wear a wire into purchase uh, cannabis from, from Rich on multiple occasions. And the heroin dealer, they let go. They dropped his heroin charges so they could arrest a weed dealer which is a very strange thing to do from like a public relations perspective, right? Like let the heroin dealer go back into pot, you know, into uh, the public, but put the weed dealer in jail. And as soon as Rich was arrested, he was taken to the Keene Police Department where Phil Christiana was waiting for him. And Phil Christiana wanted uh, Rich to wear a wire into the uh, the Keene Activist Center which was one of my projects that was, uh, you know, I know duplex here in Keene, and it was part, it was the other half of the duplex, uh, that, which is on the other side from the broadcast studio in my home. And so Christiana wanted him to wear a wire, and, uh, and Rich refused to do so. So they said, all right, well, we're going to come at you with these charges. Uh, you're going to face up to 81 years or 100 years in prison. And are you sure you don't want to wear this wire? And he said he's not going to do it. And so they, they prosecuted him. He ended up going to jail, thankfully, for just one year of his life 
in that particular case. But again, it was Phil Christiana. And so fast forward here to this most recent incident where at six in the morning, actually almost a year ago, it was March 16th of 2021, uh, at six in the morning, the FBI did a coordinated raid on multiple different locations, including my studio and home, uh, Rich, a.k.a. Nobody's house, which is right next, he was living right next door, and another co-host of ours, Aria Demetso, as well as a few other folks. Uh, they raided us all simultaneously and brought us all up on a bunch of ridiculous victimless crime charges relating to Bitcoin. Well, I didn't know at the time, but once I got into the discovery, I discovered that the head agent was Phil Christiana. So this very same guy who's been investigating us for so many years uh, finally made another move against us. So it's kind of a long history there, but it wasn't just it, this didn't just come out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. now, just before we go further, uh, tell us more about this guy, Rich, this guy, nobody. Um, uh, was he convicted for that year on pot, on cannabis? Weed? Yeah, cannabis sales. Yeah, he was convicted uh, for that. For that. And mm -hmm. um, uh, did he serve his time? Or did, he did. Or, uh, so he, he never um, got off any of a charge or was No, found. he is now a felon as a result of that conviction. Because I know he recently came back on the air um, or, or I don't know, is he currently on the air with you? Yeah, he just was able to come back after um, being held for six months without bail in the what we are now calling the Crypto 6 case, the, the most recent set of arrests. Uh, I was held for over two months before I was given bail with some pretty ridiculous and restrictive uh, restrictions. He also was given some uh, some heavy restrictions, including that he was not allowed to be on Free Talk Live or use any social media. And so we were able to get the judge in the case to approve him to be back on Free Talk Live, but he's still not allowed to use social media. I guess they think he's going to foment a revolution or something like that, which is pretty silly. Well, there's a whole bunch of charges against you that um, have come to bear. And, you know, uh, you say that they, they, they just came up with these things um, out of the blue for some type of a mysterious reason or a vendetta or a preemption that you don't uh, cause a revolution in America. But um, they, they say that you have been running an illegal Bitcoin business, an exchange business, that uh, all kinds of things. I'm looking at this list of, uh, of issues um, and... Uh, it's, you know, that you had exchange kiosks in Keene and you were selling illegal uh, instruments and that you had fraudulent bank accounts and that you were involved in um, uh, church activity to uh, kind of uh, camouflage the, the real uh, enterprise that you were in. Where'd they come up with all of this? Is there any truth to this? Is this just totally pulled out of thin air? What's the deal? Well, we are big advocates for cryptocurrency on Free Talk Live, and absolutely the Shire Free Church, which is sort of the parent organization of Free Talk Live. It's a church that Mark and I and uh, some other folks founded back in 2012. Uh, the Shire Free Church did have a, a Bitcoin outreach operation here in Keene and elsewhere with uh, cryptocurrency vending machines. Uh, and... The federal government doesn't like it when you do things without asking for their permission. However, we have opinions from our attorney that says that we didn't need to uh, ask for permission. So we did our research in this case. We did not believe that we had any obligation whatsoever uh, to jump through the federal government's hoops. And they believe differently. And now they're going to try to uh, to prove that in court and put us in prison for uh, for a very long time. They're alleging that we did um, quote-unquote money transmission without a license, uh, that we had a conspiracy to do that without a, uh, without a license, that uh, there was a money laundering charge where they sent an undercover agent in who tried to pose as a heroin dealer to whom I refused to sell uh, when I heard what he did for a living. I refused to sell him uh, cryptocurrency, but they, they still hit, hit me with that charge. And they also have what's called wire fraud, and a bunch of those charges are pretty ridiculous from what I've seen in, in the discovery. We didn't uh, defraud anyone out of anything. There's no actual victim in this case. They're essentially saying that if you tell a lie to a bank, that that is wire fraud. And, of course, we dispute that we lied to any banks uh, at any point. So, again, they're going to have to prove that case. Uh, and then there's the big charge of... They call continuing financial crimes enterprise, and I'm the only defendant out of the six people they've charged in this case who's facing that charge, and that one has a 10-year minimum sentence, and it ultimately it 
it sort of says that, oh, well, you did these things over a certain period of time and it had to do with over X million dollars and you had more than X people helping you. So therefore, it's a financial crimes enterprise. So that's kind of the, the briefest rundown possible on the charges, which are uh, outrageous. Now, now is, isn't it true? And I, I am one of the most ignorant people you'll ever run into when it comes to understanding this next layer of economics called crypto. Um, so I, I go easy on me mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and all those listening, because I hope you realize most people still don't understand this. Oh, yeah. It's new technology, for yeah, sure. You know, and anybody who cl- it's sort of like quantum physics. If anybody claims to be too much of an expert, they probably don't know what they're talking about, mm. <laughs> because I'm sure there's areas of this that you have to keep up with yourself, um, unless you're some type of a mathematical or an abstract genius, which I sometimes think you might be. But... All I'm saying is this is an area that is full of vagaries and a lot of people um, on one level are nervous that they're not getting in on something mm-hmm. and on another level are nervous that they're nervous about not getting in on something because quite often when that happens, you get in on the wrong thing and you wind up losing your shirt. So um, there's that going on. The other thing is is that um, I've been told by experts in scamming and, and, and uh, all of that stuff that's going on in our society enhanced by the digital era, that crypto is a great way to anonymously have uh, financial transactions for scam projects and scam activities because it's, it is anonymous. Does that tie into any of this uh, whereby you have been connected to scams and to – you mentioned you wouldn't sell to a heroin dealer, but – have you just by the nature of dealing with people involved in crypto been involved with criminals that maybe you didn't know about or that you didn't do your due diligence to find out what it was all about? Yeah, we did as much due diligence as we could, but ultimately some of the scam artists out there are very persuasive and they can fool people and we don't know when they do that. So um, I'll give you an example. One of the most popular ones is what's called a romance scam where the uh, scammer will contact someone on various different either social media or maybe like a dating website and they will pr- uh, purport to be maybe uh, someone who's in the military or at a, on an oil rig or whatever the story is and they need help and so they fall in love with this uh, this person they give attention to someone on the internet who's very lonely a lot of times they are elderly uh, they give uh, attention to somebody that might have might be a widow or whatever, and she just you know locks on to this this person and believes their stories, and and then they'll say something like, okay, well, I need you to go out and get me ten thousand dollars worth of prepaid Visa cards, and so the, the lady goes out and takes their inheritance or their retirement money, and they uh, go to Target and they buy ten thousand dollars worth of Visa cards, and all Target's employees do is say. Now, ma'am, you're not being scammed, are you? And, of course, she doesn't think she's being scammed because it's her lover right, on the Internet. Right, right. And so oh. she goes ahead and buys the $10,000 worth of cards, gives the, uh, the scam artist the card details, and then he takes those and sells them on the Internet and, and makes money. Hmm. And so, so they will do the same thing, of course, with, uh, with, with Bitcoin, and that's where uh, some of uh, me and my friends came in came into play because we were selling Bitcoin through these vending machines and also online through websites like localbitcoins.com. And so in many cases, it wouldn't matter if we asked all the questions we could ask, far more questions than they would have gotten at Target, by the way, and they didn't charge the Target manager or the Target uh, cashier with the same things that they're charging us with. And we did far more due diligence in in many of these cases. But if somebody's in love and they you know they totally believe what's happening to them, you really ultimately cannot talk them out of these circumstances. So no, we we definitely were not knowledgeably involved in any scams, and we did everything we could to catch, and in many cases did catch uh, scams in progress and saved many people from from being scammed. But you can't save everybody, unfortunately. Well, you see, that's the thing about you that, that strikes me, um, that's so striking to me in this whole thing is that, you know, I, you and I don't know each other that well, but we know each other well enough as, as people in the same industry. And, and uh, I have uh, followed what you do and we report on what you do and you've uh, participated in our conventions and, and you've been, from my perspective, model citizens of the radio industry. And I've always had the feeling in any conversations we've had that you were particularly bound by a certain sense of principle. 
mm. that 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 you could have been uh, far more successful in the radio business had you played the game more. Right. Uh, because you obviously, you and Mark have a, a knowledge of how to do it and you work hard, as you mentioned before. So I find it hard to imagine. But then again, <laughs> you know, who knows with people? And you know that. But sure. I, find... I don't I don't think I would have gotten to 190 plus radio stations by being a dishonest uh, person. Right. And being, well, being I, dishonorable. I, 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 it, it seems to me the reason you got to all of these is because you are honorable. Right. I mean, it, it, it's not so much that you're not dishonorable. You, you guys had have that um, aura about you. And um, I've, I've never, you know, I, I see all these these promotions and, and scammy, not necessarily scams, but, you know, greasy games that are played in every industry. I never saw you guys doing that. No. Uh, and, and as I, I you, you seemed like pranksters with a mission. And um, I, I don't mean to diminish the courage it took to stand up to police or to, to pay you know, people's parking meters and all that. But it, 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 it's a far cry from having the FBI chasing you and um, doing what they've done. What exactly is your legal status right now? I know talking to Mark, he said that, um, that the two of you have not been allowed to communicate and he's only able to make, if ever, I don't even know if he's able to be on the show at this point. What is, what is the legal status? What, what are you facing at the moment? Under pretty heavy bail restrictions, but just recently, the one uh, that was restricting me from contacting Mark uh, was was removed. So he is now allowed to talk to me. I'm allowed to have him back on the show. Uh, the reason he couldn't be on the show is because it happens in the studio that's in my home. So it would have been difficult for for me to avoid him. But uh, but now we can talk again after many months. But they gave me a list of people that I wasn't allowed to talk to. Uh, because they could be potential witnesses, and I guess the excuse for me not being able to talk to what is ultimately a list of my friends uh, is that, well, I might be intimidating the witnesses or something like that. And so, luckily, we are now able to discuss almost everything with the exception of the case itself under these bail conditions. I'm also on what's called a curfew with an ankle monitor, so I've got a little little radio transmitter on me that uh, talks to a little base station here in my home. So if I go more than 100 feet outside of the radius of this device, so basically leaving the property, uh, it will let the probation officer know who is monitoring me. Uh, it, previously, I had to ask for permission even to go to the grocery store. Now I that's been loosened a little bit, so the leash is, is a little lighter, and I can leave the house without asking for permission so long as I'm back by 11 o'clock at night. So, so you are under arrest or you are on probation uh, well, it's like being on probation, but it's actually just pretrial confinement, basically. How long has this been going on? Uh, since I got out of jail at the end of May on bail, these uh, these bail conditions, I also can't leave New Hampshire without special permission. How long were you in jail? Uh, for sixty nine days. And what was the basis of that in, that jailing? Well, the, the claim is, oh, he's got access to cryptocurrency; he could run. Uh, was ultimately their argument for keeping me in jail. The judge ended up so that at the federal courts, there's an initial magistrate who hears the first bail request and they denied me bail. And then the judge uh, who's actually going to hear the case, you can appeal the magistrate's bail decision to that judge. And the judge says, basically, this bail is or he needs to get bail because he's not a violent person. We have our ways of keeping him in place. And so he let me out after 69 days. And, and it took six months to get my friend nobody out. Now, this jail, what, what was it? Was it a jail or was it a prison? I mean, you don't go to prison unless you're sentenced to prison. Right. So these were actually New Hampshire jails. Right. And the federal government uh, pays the New Hampshire jails to, to house its pretrial uh, prisoners. Or jail what was your inmates. life like in that 69 days? How were you treated there? It was pretty similar to the last time I went to jail. I went to jail for 58 days for civil disobedience about a decade ago when uh, during the Derek J's victimless crime spree days, I was arrested several times uh, for various different victimless things. And I spent 58 days back then in Cheshire County. Uh, the one that I went to in this case was Merrimack uh, County, I believe, up by the, the Concord region. So it was a, a bit of a hike, but... At least in New Hampshire, the jails aren't run by psychopaths. Like in some places, the guards tend to be... Although I've heard bad things about the Manchester jail, so I can't speak to uh, to that one. I've never been there. But the ones I've been in, the guards were, were pretty decent. 
Um, so, you know, it wasn't terrible. Were you able to broadcast on your show when you were in jail? Not very easily, although we actually have a, co- a few affiliates in New Hampshire, so it was it was kind of fun to be able to listen <laughs> to the show on the radio. Normally, I don't I don't get that uh, that privilege to actually hear one of our broadcasts of uh, of Free Talk Live. There were on the nights that the baseball games weren't on, of course, mm-hmm. uh, our show was there. But every now and then, I was out at the time that the show was on because I was on a one hour per day out, so I was actually fairly locked down uh, because I. I I'm medically exempt from wearing a mask, and so they had this mask mandate in the jail, which I did not, you know, comply with, and so they kept me on lockdown, 23-hour-a-day lockdown for the entire time that I was there. So a lot of people wouldn't be able to handle that situation, but it just uh, gave me time to read a lot of books. You seem so level-headed and so even-keeled. I I find that fascinating. Um, Are you frightened? No, maybe I'm just institutionalized. (laughs) (laughs) Is a part of you, if I may ask, getting off on this? Uh, No, no, not at all. I mean, it's never fun to have your loved ones separated from you. I've got a very uh, lovely lady, a girlfriend, uh, Bonnie, who was at home, and it's never easy on people who care about you to to go into jail as, as... familiar as I might be with those circumstances, people on the outside are are not. And so I don't wish that on anyone. But at the same time, uh, people that are close to me, they understand that activism like we do here does have potential consequences. And so it does, it just kind of comes with the territory to some extent. You have to understand that if you are, and we are peaceful, I want to make clear, uh, the activists here are very, very peaceful. I know the FBI wants to find uh, people who are violent and they've never found that amongst our group, but uh, we're very, very peaceful, but that still doesn't mean they won't target you and they won't come up with uh, with reasons to go after you. Well, do, so, you, do you see your activity within the Bitcoin business to be uh, an extension of activism, or do you see their coming after you and prosecuting you for the Bitcoin business as their way of punishing you for the activism? Uh, both of those things, I think that that spreading cryptocurrency and helping people understand those ideas is absolutely activism. For me, it is a, a mission of peace, actually. And then, and if you'll allow me, I'll explain why that. Yes, is. please. Uh, so the Shire Free Church is a peace church. That is our mission: is to foster peace. And so when I discovered what cryptocurrency was really all about. Uh, I, I, I just said, wow, this really dovetail, dovetails perfectly with, uh, with our mission. And so to take you back uh, to how we ended up getting into crypto, it's kind of a, an interesting story. Our advertiser at the time was a man named Roger Veer, and this was in the 2011-2012 range, so a couple of years into uh, when uh, Bitcoin came out in 2009. We had someone call into the show and, and told us about this thing called Bitcoin. And of course, we were skeptical. At the time, we were kind of big gold and silver guys. We, we liked the idea of alternative currencies because the, the dollar and, and these fiat currencies, as they are called, are, are absolutely tools for evil and violence and destruction. But uh, they told us about Bitcoin, and we were skeptical. But there was a, one of our listeners out there, Roger, who was also a current advertiser with us, really caught the vision of what this meant. And he saw it as a tool to kind of undermine the financial status quo and to return the power of money into the hands of the individual, the power of this, uh, that is the real power of cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, to take money out of the hands of big banks and big governments of the world and actually have the individual have control over their finances for the first time in generations. And so he went and he spent, I don't know how much of his money, but quite a bit at the time when Bitcoin was probably less than a dollar a piece, and as we're doing this recording today, Bitcoin is currently, I think, $42,000 a piece. Mm. So as you can, you might imagine, he's done very, very well uh, with that. And he came to us and he said, all right, guys, well, I want to keep advertising with you, but I want you to take at least some of my advertising dollars in Bitcoin. And at the time, I said, well, I don't know about this Bitcoin thing, so we'll take 10%. <laughs> and if I'd said 100%, we would have 10 times as, as many uh, Bitcoins mm-hmm. as we ended up doing. But still, I'm pretty good at holding on to things, and I, and I did hold those uh, Bitcoins for a very long time. And so Free Talk Live ultimately did very, very so well. So you made a lot of money in Bitcoin, but how, how is it possible for 
a currency, in this case, a, a you know a, an instrument, Bitcoin, to give the people, the person, the independent citizen, more power over money when it fluctuates so much on the market and people can lose fortunes. How 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 is a currency a, a commodity? I know that the dollar every day, there are people that play the dollar versus the ruble. We hear about that with the Russian thing and, and you know, the various ratios between currencies and the world market. But if you have a currency that is going to eventually replace these fiat currencies, isn't it sort of contradictory that it itself is a commodity that has a market that fluctuates so wildly beyond what these other currencies, which seem stable by comparison, um, do? How did, how, what's your answer to that question? I'm not, I'm not saying it in an accusing way. I'm no, just no. curious about that. It's an interesting question, and actually, I think it's one of the things that, should this case of the Crypto 6 go to trial, will become a, uh, an interesting aspect to the trial as to whether or not Bitcoin is actually money. You know, in order to, to be a money transmitter, first it has to be money, and arguably Bitcoin isn't. Um, it because it doesn't have stability, and that's you know if you go and you look up what are some of the uh, the basic aspects of what is money, uh, stability is generally considered one of the most important. Exactly, ones. and so it doesn't have that. But what Bitcoin is is it is a way to transmit value over what could be a very long distance or a short distance. Could be this somebody in the the room next to you or somebody in Tokyo uh, is the ability to transmit value without having to ask anyone's permission. And that is a huge game changer. And the reason why that's possible, that gets into the technical aspects of what is a blockchain and what, why should money be uh, decentralized and distributed and, and sort of the technical aspects of it. But because of the cryptographic security and because of the decentralization, uh, because of the blockchain, we've cut out the middleman in the world of uh, transactions and the bankers and the governments of the world are not happy about that because I don't remember if it was Rothschild or whoever it was, but somebody in, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, said, you know, I don't care who the politicians are as long as I control the money. And as long as the politicians and the bankers uh, control the money, they're the ones who are, they have all the power, they have the control. Taking that out of their hands, which is the, the brilliance of what Satoshi Nakamoto, the anonymous creator, of Bitcoin did is truly the most important thing to happen to finance uh, in our lifetimes. And we're only just now beginning to scratch the surface of exactly what that's going to mean. Now, So you say that um, there, there are no laws. Uh, you don't have to ask permission of the government, which means you, there's no laws attached to the, um, the exchange, the transfer um, the, the, the trading of Bitcoin, and yet isn't that what the government's case against you is based on, that you did it without going through the, the proper channels? Yeah, their argument is essentially, as I understand it, is that you guys didn't get a money transmitter license and our interpretation of our codes, because that's all law is, it's just opinions backed by a gun, uh, our interpretation, says the government, is that these old laws that were written before the internet even existed when it comes to quote-unquote money transmission should apply to Bitcoin. And our, our argument is, no, they shouldn't. And that get, you know, we can get into the, the technicals of, of why that is, but that's, that's basically what it's going to come down to is our attorney uh, that we had hired long before this case became a thing – looked at the money transmitter statutes and the quote-unquote money services business uh, statutes and said, oh yeah, this doesn't apply. It doesn't apply at the state level and it doesn't apply at the, at the federal level to what we were doing. Well, if, if, if you are vindicated, what happens to all the money that you made? And if you're not vindicated and, and if this goes you know, the wrong direction for you, what's going to happen to the money you made? Well, here's the thing. This wasn't about making money, but ultimately, whatever they've seized should come back, although they may try to bring a civil case to uh, to prevent that because there's a lower burden of proof in a, in a civil case. So who knows how difficult they're going to make it. But the federal government wants it to sound like this was some sort of a money-making uh, thing, when ultimately, as I'd explained to you, we had already had a bunch of Bitcoin from long before they started this investigation and long before we we opened up any kind of Bitcoin vending machine anywhere, we already had a bunch of Bitcoin on hand 
So ultimately, this was simply a mission of getting Bitcoin into people's hands and making it so they could access the Bitcoin. In fact, uh, much of what came in from revenue from those things went right back out into local advertising. I, I was buying radio commercials on broadcast radio here in Keene, uh, just kind of going over the basics of Bitcoin, educating people. We did giveaways uh, where people could reach out, and as long as they would install a, a cryptocurrency wallet, we'd give them 50 bucks worth of uh, cryptocurrency as their first, you know, here you go, kind of first one's free. Uh, and uh, it and just it was an educational mission more than it was really anything else. What's the deal with these um, Bitcoin vending machines? I mean, <laughs> who's making vending machines and who has the right to run them? Well, anybody that can afford to buy one, I mean, you're going to probably put down around three to three to ten thousand dollars for a Bitcoin vending machine of various different sizes. Some of them mount to a wall and they're like a little box. Others are full-on stand-up. Uh, full-size uh, machines. A lot of people call them Bitcoin ATMs, but the reason we called them Bitcoin vending machines was because of the technical way that our machines were running, which was one of the reasons why they were not money transmitters, by the way, because they were selling out of what they call uh, in the business a hot wallet. So that meant that the machine itself had an inventory of Bitcoin, and the person who wanted to purchase the Bitcoin would put in cash into the machine. They would show the machine their Bitcoin wallet code, and the machine would deliver Bitcoin uh, to that person's wallet address. Mm. And so kind of like a, a candy bar uh, vending machine or a, a soda machine, except the, you know, you'd pay a lot more. But yeah, but um, one of the – I was looking over the cases. One of, one of the you know, points against you uh, in the government case is that you were illegally operating – um, Bitcoin vending machines. Who operates them legally? In, in other words, how how does that work? Well, again, they want everybody to ask their permission to do anything. Uh huh. And so, so they're all illegal then? They, they, no, no. Uh, well, I, I think they're all legal whether they ask for permission or not. But obviously, their opinion is that you need to ask their permission. And so they, their organization is called FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcements Network, and, and their job is to, uh, you know, to get everybody to obey. And they really, really like it when you do that because it means revenue for them and it means obedience. And that's what a lot of these government goons are all about. It's about getting your money and getting your obedience. And in, in this case, I don't think that you need to do what they say because ultimately our opinion is that their laws do not apply to cryptocurrency because it's not money transmission. And it never has been and it never will be, number one, because Bitcoin is, is actually free speech. It's a commodity, as you pointed out. And and the reality is, the technical reality is, Bitcoin doesn't even move. It's it's all on the same. Uh, and that gets really into the the engineering parts of Bitcoin. But when Bitcoin goes appears to go from one wallet to another, it's actually not even moving on the on the uh, the ledger, the public ledger that it's on, which is the blockchain. Hmm. So it's... they really have nothing in my in my opinion as far as their case is concerned. But it's in their interest to interpret the statutes as widely as possible. And then bring criminal charges against people, and and you know the, the way they normally do it is they stack as many charges as they can. They intimidate the uh, the defendant into taking a plea deal, and that's one of the interesting things about this case, Michael. Is in all the other times they brought charges against people, they've all taken a plea deal. So I, I don't think anyone's ever taken this to trial. So what is the status of the trial now? How long how long is this going to go on before you finally go to trial and resolve it one way or the other? Yeah, it's currently looking like November. So, uh, it, you know, it, it's not like uh, on television shows where they go to trial after the next commercial break? <laughs> no. Uh, well, now, and we also did waive the speedy trial, uh, right, because of just the incredible amount of discovery in this case. They, have, they spent five years investigating this. And that's kind of one of the other interesting aspects of this is the the federal government's narrative of this is, oh, well, because of their actions, they were encouraging fraud and all these fraudsters were taking advantage of their services. And then look at all these old ladies who are victims. of the Well, if we were really this big problem, why didn't they bring the charges after the first year or two? They were investigating us for five years. The charges, the wire fraud charges, so-called 
go back as far as 2017. So why didn't they go ahead and just arrest us all in 2017? And in my opinion, the reason they didn't do that was because they wanted to wait until they could hit me with the financial crimes, uh, continuing financial crimes enterprise charge, which requires at least a three year of this and that and at least this many people to be involved. So they wanted to bring as many charges as they could, not just one. Uh, so if this was really about like saving people from fraud, they should have arrested us four years ago, but they didn't. Have you made such an impact as a libertarian activist in the media, locally and across the country, that the FBI would go to this amount of trouble to pin all this stuff on you? Are you really that dangerous in their eyes? I don't know. Um, I mean, I don't think I, I tend to not think of Free Talk Live as a particularly big show. Yeah, we have 190 stations, but, you know, not a whole lot of them run us live and right. they're not humongous flamethrowers for the for the most part. We're still a relatively small show. Uh, but the but I think the Free State Project has definitely captured the attention of the uh, the FBI. That's why they've been investigating Free Staters here since as far back as 2005. So they're definitely paying attention to us. So are you are you optimistic? I asked you earlier if you're if you're scared. Um, what type of advice are you getting from the lawyers that you talk to? Do they feel there's a good chance that, that you'll be vindicated, or um, are you in a whole bunch of trouble because the, these guys are out to get you and they have enormous resources? Well, they certainly have enormous resources, and there's no skin off their back if uh, they end up losing this case. Uh, they don't get punished or have to pay any kind of uh, fees for that. We're the ones who have to spend money on attorneys. And, uh, you know, it is what it is, and they're going to do the worst that they can do. They may still bring more charges. My attorney tells me they may be uh, cooking up some more charges. I just had a couple of old friends and, and co-hosts uh, who haven't been on in years because they moved out of uh, the area five years ago. They got subpoenaed to a grand jury recently. Uh, that's coming up within the next two months. So the, it looks like they're still working to find some other things to charge me or others with. So they may not yet be done with their stacking the charges portion of this. Uh, but in my opinion, having looked at the discovery at this point in the case, I think they they have a very weak case. Uh, that's just my opinion about it. And uh, my, my attorney is very good. He's very experienced. His name is Mark Sisti uh, here in New Hampshire. And uh, I, I think he's great. There's been so little about this in the news um, uh, in, in terms of covering this fascinating story. Yeah. Um, are newspapers and radio stations and television reporters afraid to cover this story? Um, or have you just been laying low with it? Um, no, I mean, your typical attorney doesn't want anyone to talk to the media, but I, I've, I've got a habit of doing that. So uh, I have taken on pretty much any kind of interviews because I do want people to be aware of the case. Uh, I do want publicity for it. We don't need help with the attorneys, but what we do need help with is getting the word out uh, about the Crypto 6. And so we did have some good coverage uh, last year. There was a great feature piece in New York Magazine. Uh, there was another one in The Verge. Uh, those guys did some pretty in-depth interviews. They came up here to to Keen and, you know, photographers and everything. So there have been a few things, but yeah, nothing, you know, nothing really big. Um, but oh, well, we're going to do and, the best and, we can. And, and you're not breaking any kind of gag order or, or problem or, you know, law or rule by talking to me and having this out there. Um, in other words, speaking so freely as you are, um, uh, are you in any way in contempt of court or in contempt of something? No, I'm I'm not allowed to, uh, as I understand it, with my co-defendants. I, I, first of all, I can't talk to my co-defendants without special permission, so I do have special permission to be on the show with uh, with nobody and with Aria, and uh, I'm not allowed to talk to a ser certain series of witnesses but uh, or potential witnesses, but ultimately, um, I think the thing they don't want me to really discuss with those folks is the case itself. And I can still talk about the allegations the state has made, right? Because that's public. Mm -hmm. that's, uh, they, they probably don't want me talking about the, the details of the discovery because that's generally considered confidential. Mm -hmm. So that, that I don't get into, but the, the allegations they've made uh, that are you know, in the indictment, I, I can comment on those. But as we wrap this up, um, is there? I, I very seldom ask this question, but because I, as I said at the beginning, I don't know or understand 
so much of the background and details about this personally that um, I'm humbled by that. And um, giving you every benefit of the doubt that I can based upon the fact that I've known you for so long in the business and um, have a high regard for you based upon my experiences with you. Of course, I hope Thank you. they don't call me as a witness now. <laughs> <laughs> but that's beside the point. Um, uh, um, so here's the question that I never ask. Is there anything that I have failed to ask you that is material information that would make this a better interview um, in terms of aspects of this that you want to take the opportunity to get across to our audience, which includes a whole bunch of people in the media and beyond? Oh, um, well, no, you've been great. But I just realized I never completed my statement about why uh, cryptocurrency is a mission of peace. And so, if you don't mind, I'll, I don't I'll mind at all. Uh, so, having learned about how cryptocurrency can put the power of money back into the hands of the individual and take it out uh, from the hands of the state, well, to me, the state, the idea of it is essentially violence, and and we see that violence in the form of the war on drugs, in the form of actual wars. Uh, across the the world that the U.S. government and other governments of the world involve themselves in, uh, that, of course, that is anything but peace. And if we can take away their funding by migrating people's value over to this alternative that the people control, that the state has zero control over, despite their best efforts, uh, there's ultimately nothing that they can do to stop Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies uh, to every single dollar that we can get out of the system and into cryptocurrency is a step or a, on the path toward peace. Because if the federal government actually had to tax people to go to war, it would find a much more difficult time of doing that. Now they don't have to. There was a time in the past where they had to do that. But because of fiat currency, which has no backing whatsoever... The federal government can just print money. They just, you know, go to the Federal Reserve and turn on the money printers and increment uh, zeros in, in computer systems, and they just create more money out of thin air, which is what the definition of inflation is. That's something a lot of people in the media get wrong. They define inflation as a rise in prices. The real definition of inflation is an increase in the money supply, and prices tend to rise as a result of that. So they can fund war by just printing up as many trillions of dollars as they need to. But if more people actually migrate their value over to cryptocurrency that protects that value uh, from being used for violence, the violence of the state. And so to me, this is absolutely a mission of peace. And uh, so there you go. That's my explanation. And there you have it. An uninterrupted conversation with the colorful and controversial co-host of the nationally syndicated radio talk show, Free Talk Live. To learn more, visit their website, freetalklive.com. Thank you for downloading this program from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the Podcast One app, and for following our Tuesday tweets announcing the names of our weekly guests. To sign up, it's at MH Interview. I can be reached directly via email at michaelatalkers.com. If you find this show to be of interest and value, please subscribe to it as well as giving it a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison, The Michael Harrison Interview. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Interview is a production of Good Phone Communications presented in association with Podcast One and Talkers Magazine. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.